0: Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! It's great to see everybody here. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. If you're with us in the room or watching us on the live stream, we're thankful that you are with us. I'm just tremendously encouraged that you are all here this morning. You've uh, chosen to worship um, with us, to join us to worship uh, the one whose uh, birth we celebrate this morning. Now, there are a number of churches, as you might have uh, heard, a number of churches in our area and around the country who've canceled their worship service this morning because they don't want to quote unquote interrupt Christmas but we're not going to we're not going to uh, celebrate the lord's birth by neglecting the lord's day amen? amen so I'm so thankful you're here let's stop and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time our father in heaven we're so thankful for an opportunity to worship you and to praise you and Tell you of our great love that we have for you. We're so thankful for Christ, whose uh, birth we celebrate, whose incarnation we honor. We stand amazed at your tremendous love for us and the love of the Savior who would condescend to our level and come and put on our humanity and stand in our place and take the punishment due us, although he was innocent. Also, that we could be forgiven, reconciled, restored in our relationship with you our god so that we might know joy true joy and so we honor you and we honor the savior and we're thankful for the word that uh, we have an opportunity to study that's empowered by the holy spirit and may that truth that the holy spirit has penned through the human author uh, impress our heart that we might truly celebrate christ uh, the christ of christmas and we might honor you this morning we pray in jesus name amen well, it is exciting to gather, uh, each and every Lord's Day, and especially this one. Um, you are probably aware that there is nothing, um, there's nothing biblically important about the December 25th date. Uh, the truth is nobody really knows exactly when Christ was born. There's all kinds of ideas. Some people say January 6th, some people March 9th, some people April 2nd. Some people even May 2nd, some people even say September 29th. So the reality is nobody knows why, because the Bible doesn't tell us. December 25th came about in the middle of the 4th century when under Emperor Constantine, Rome was continuing to expand its world power. And the Bishop of Jerusalem wrote to the Bishop of Rome and asked him to determine the actual date of Christ's birth. And the Bishop of Rome said it's December 25th. But let me tell you a little secret. He didn't know, because nobody knows. He just made it up, okay? Bible doesn't tell us. Now, he put the date of Christ's birth on December 25th for a specific reason, because in these ancient times, especially uh, during the winter months, uh, there was uh, great pagan uh, celebrations uh, worshiping the sun, and uh, specifically the sun god Mithras, uh, originally a Persian deity, and that cult penetrated its way into the Roman world, even into the first century. <laughs> and uh, beyond and, and you know uh, in a winter as we're experiencing right now the days are cold here in the northern hemisphere the sun gradually uh, moves to the south days grow shorter and darker and in ancient times many people believed that the sun was departing and wouldn't return so to encourage the sun's uh, return to the north uh, to give the winter god the sun god his strength to bring back life again So that uh, days would go longer and the sun would return and higher up in the sky. The sun god was worshipped. So these pagan celebrations lasted about two weeks in the middle of late December, uh, middle to late December. People go outside, they cut evergreens that adorn their houses with these uh, uh, trees and kind of a way of looking forward to the return of green. So they'd have all different kinds of plants inside their house, uh, holly, mistletoe. Uh, They would exchange gifts and it was just really a a time of revelry, a time of of um, gluttonous drinking and feasts and uh, when it was observed that the sun was moving forward again up towards the north the, the days were go- growing longer then a new year was proclaimed and people uh, felt like their worship was uh, successful in rome there's a little bit difference a uh, little bit difference or other influences going on the winters weren't as harsh for people in uh, um, rome as it was in uh, people were in northern europe um, part of the celebration in rome was not just uh, towards the false deity mithras but they honored the deity the false deity saturn uh, the god of agriculture so there was a, sal- a celebration in these winter months or a worship time if you well known as saturnalia and again saturnalia was just nothing more than a hedonistic time of food and drink and boisterous pagan revelry in the early new testament church uh, and very uh, early on in the years of christianity um, the 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 birth of Christ was not celebrated. Again, it wasn't until 320 AD when the Bishop of Rome decided that he's going to put a celebration on the birth of Christ on December 25th. Kind of as a way, I guess, to quote-unquote sanctify the pagan celebrations uh, that are already going on in the culture. I guess he thought if you put a celebration of worshiping the birth of the Savior on a certain day that had already been given over to personal indulgence, that somehow people would stop and take notice. But... They don't, right? They didn't then, they don't now. They don't stop and acknowledge uh, and, and the Savior and worship for him. So all of that uh, worldly kind of thinking was for naught. People just kept going on doing what they'd always been doing, and it never missed a beat, just as like uh, goes on today. Most people don't worship Christ on the birth of uh, Christmas that, that we celebrate. Even after the December 25th date was set as an official date of Christ's birth, celebrations really never caught on uh, amongst many believers. It was in 1038. The Roman Catholic Church introduced what is known as the feast they call the Christus Massi, uh, whence we get the, the shortened Christ Mass or Christ Mass, uh, popularly kind of conjoined together into Christmas. Now, if you know anything about the, the Roman Catholic Church, any kind of Mass in the Roman Catholic Church is blasphemous. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church holds that the Catholic priest has the power to literally call christ down out of heaven which he does not have that power and christ is sacrificed anew each time the mass is performed the roman catholic church teaches that the priest has the power to take uh, the the bread and the wine into uh, in the communion and literally turn it into the flesh and blood of christ and he doesn't have that power either it's called theologically it's called transubstantiation and i don't know if you've seen much of this but people literally worship the elements I mean, they literally worship the elements as if that was God himself because that's their teaching. Now, obviously, the Roman Catholic system and that whole uh, idea is blasphemy. It's a denial of the gospel. Therefore, some believing uh, Christians, some believing individuals have felt that uh, Christ- uh, Christmas, their celebration for Christmas a- a- as a believer is improper. And that was true in the early uh, time of America, early America and the Puritans. They didn't celebrate uh, Christmas. They saw it as kind of a Roman leftover. They did not want to have anything to do with it. So, they would deliberately work on December 25th in order to show their disdain for this uh, holiday they considered pagan. In 1644, English Puritans passed a law making Christmas uh, Day a work day. In fact, they passed a law making it illegal to cook plum pudding and mince pie, which is a diff- difficult thing to handle because I love mince pie. <laughs> and we make them a lot at Christmas time. Now, when we gather together to worship, and celebrate the birth of Christ, we come to worship him. We're not embracing any part of the blasphemous abomination called the Christ Mass. We're not celebrating or worshiping or partaking in any of the pagan rituals or pagan worship or heathen customs of the past or the present. When we come together to celebrate Christmas, we come to worship Christ. The Bible does not command us to celebrate the birth of Christ... But the Bible also does not forbid us from celebrating the birth of Christ. But the Bible does command us to worship the Savior, right? And that's what we have the great privilege of doing together uh, this morning. I think it was Spurgeon who said, Christmas is here, we might as well live with it. Take the opportunity to exalt Christ. And I agree highly with him. Uh, And and that's what we're going to do this morning. We've gathered this morning, you've come this morning to honor Christ. That's the proper thing that we should do. And if Christ would be best served... I think believers should always every time Christmas comes is to seize of the season for the glory of uh, the glory of God uh, instead of being a part of that segment of christianity says i'm not that says I'm not going to participate in any of it because it has pagan pagan origins I, I get that, but it's here we might as well seize it for the glory of Christ and I personally think that the glory of Christ the honor of Christ would be better served in the church quote unquote if they actually decided to gather together corporately this morning they'd have their doors open on a christmas day so that people might walk in off the streets and worship hear the gospel and as you have done this morning collectively worship and to gather together to worship and honor christ as we are commanded to do by way of scripture so with all that said i'm just glad you're here i'm just absolutely thrilled we had a great time last night did we not Look bad outside, the weather is terrible, and it's ice, and it's treachery and death and destruction and fear, right? And we were talking about this as elders. What What do we do, you know, because everybody's saying, you know, death and, death and destruction is everywhere. And one of the comments that I made was, you know, there's a, a story that uh, Spurgeon was caught in a blizzard, and uh, he popped into a church that was open, the only one that was open that day. And had a chance to hear the gospel and I said why wouldn't we just open the church and whoever can get here can get here and and the place was full I was was just so encouraged and I'm thankful that you were if you had an opportunity to come last night you were a part of that so we're going to just focus on Christ this morning we're going to take the opportunity to of Christmas to um, focus on him in a time when there's so many distractions in the culture so many distractions in the world And uh, I do think, and I say this often, I do think men's hearts are always hard. Uh, For some reason, I think some men's hearts are softer at Christmas time. I think it's an opportunity. And again, I don't know who's watching on the live stream. I don't know some of you in the room. Maybe your heart's softer this time of year towards Christ. And you need to listen to the truth if you do not know the person of Christ up to this moment. Because you need to know him. You need to know him before it's too late. Because God, out of his love, has sent Christ, his son, the Savior, into the world that you would know him, that you would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved, that you would escape the wrath that God has promised to bring against men in sin and rebellion against him. So again, it's good that we've gathered, take the opportunity to exalt the Savior, and to testify the truth uh, concerning him. Now, we celebrate Christmas because uh, we know that Christ, uh, the, the truth about Christmas, it's the eternal promises of God being carried out in time, All right? He promised that he would send uh, the, the Savior. That was the plan that he had before the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. So that those eternal plans are being carried out in time to send the Savior, the, the Messiah, his dear son. The one who would come again out of his great love in order to save people because of their sin that he would come and lay down his life in substitution as a ransom to pay the penalty for our sin so that we would not have to pay it the penalty for sin is death so somebody has to pay that penalty so christmas really is the celebration of the one who's born to die the one who was born to die, the one who was given, the one who would rise victoriously and defeat both sin and death, rising from the grave, providing salvation for all who would repent, that is, all who would admit the fact that they're a sinner, need of a Savior, turn away from that sin and embrace him alone uh, by, by faith. And all people around us need to know that truth, always. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the birth of the Savior. It's about Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not just God with us, it's God for us. That's the message that men need to understand. Again, I think I said it earlier. God has invaded alien hostile territory, somebody once said. That is this world of rebellious sinners. And he has come in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as an offer of mercy and forgiveness of sin, which, again, God doesn't have to do, but he does out of his great kindness and great condescending love. So we need to make men aware of that. So if salvation is available through Christ, if those who would... A desire to have their sin forgiven would turn and look in him. Now, when we come to the celebration of Christmas, there's a whole lot of focus, and there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, there's a whole lot of focus, and I even read out of Luke, that focuses on uh, the birth of the Savior. We tend to focus on that baby, uh, the son given, that little baby born there in the stable and brought to the temple and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that Mary, when she gives her firstborn son, she wraps him in cloths, lays him in, lays him in a manger, and, and then the shepherds come, right? Uh, the shepherds are sent there, in Luke in that uh, region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, watching over the flock by night. The angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were all terribly frightened, which you would expect, right, when God is interfering in the affairs of men, a men who are sinners, God who is holy, when he sends a representative, it's, it's right for men to fear. But the angel said, don't be afraid. This occasion of interaction between uh, between god and man is not occasion for fear but it's an occasion for joy don't be afraid for i bring you good news of great joy which shall be for all the people for today in the city of david there has been born for you a savior who's christ the lord this will be a sign for you you'll find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising god saying glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased so this point right here is the greatest day in human history it's the arrival of the savior and as I mentioned, as I read earlier, and I mentioned it last night, uh, the uh, shepherds made haste, right? They, they ran to see. Uh, we preached last night out of uh, Matthew 11, come to Christ, right? Christ says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And they ran. And that's the proper response. We should run to the Savior because God wants to be known, and God wants to, to save men from their sin through his Son. So the truth is he's come the first time, and the truth is biblically he's coming again the second time. I can't be a dogmatic on it, but more than likely, I would tend to think we're closer to the second coming of Christ than we are to his first coming. He came some 2,000 years ago. He's probably not going to wait another 2,000 before he returns. And again, while the vast majority of the world doesn't celebrate Christmas biblically, uh, and the vast majority of the world rejects the person of Christ, uh, the vast majority of the world also is very happy to keep him there in that manger just let him stay there as that little baby why because they don't want to acknowledge him they don't want to acknowledge him one but they certainly don't want to acknowledge him for who he really is who is the lord of all lords right the king of all kings the lord of all lords the sovereign of the universe because as the men of the world who don't know the truth wrongly think of him always We have to make sure that we don't wrongly think of him and have in our mind's eye, as it were, that he's still that little baby in the manger. And we certainly don't want to give men the opportunity to think of him as that little baby in the manger whom they can dismiss. So I thought it might be helpful for this morning to kind of do something a little bit different. Maybe to take a look at the Bible and see who Christ is now presently. I think that would be an encouragement to our hearts especially in a world full of darkness and bad story and sad story and depressing story. I mean, one after another, right? The thing seems to be unraveling. Well, it's only unraveling in the chaos of men. God's perfectly in control of the events and all things are going to work out for the exaltation of his son. So maybe we ought to look biblically to who he is now presently so that our hearts would be encouraged from the Bible uh, to honor and worship the one whose birth we celebrate this day so that we might properly worship him and be encouraged by biblical truth so it is true that jesus christ came uh, as a baby but that wasn't his beginning we understand that right micah chapter 5 as for you bethlehem efforts are written long before the birth of the savior as for you bethlehem effort till too little to be among the clans of judah from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler of israel his goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity Isaiah chapter 9, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Counselor, and Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So it's true that Jesus Christ stepped into the world in time as an infant, uh, the most unique uh, child ever born, but that's not all who he was and that's not all who he is. The hymn writer says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail incarnate deity, right? veiled in flesh the godhead see hail incarnate deity uh, philippians 2 paul says jesus although existed in the form of god did not regard a with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself taking on the form of a bond servant being made in the likeness of men being found in the appearance of man he humbled himself so the first time christ came in, into the world in human flesh he veiled himself he humbled himself again he took on our humanity He set aside the free exercise of the prerogatives of his deity. He became a loving, lowly, self-sacrificing servant, suffering servant, suffering savior. And I don't think there's any more powerful picture of who Jesus Christ is now presently than you can find anywhere in the Bible than in the book of the Revelation. Because there in the book of the Revelation, the veil's pulled back. You can see him there as he is now presently. So I thought, again, it might be good this morning, might be helpful this morning to think about who Christ is. Who is the Christ of Christmas we honor? And while he did come in time as a baby, that's not who he is currently. So I want you to take your Bible and open to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Just kind of quickly work our way through some of these uh, texts that describe who this little baby is. In the manger as he is unveiled who he is now in reality. And again, it's going to be a quick look. We don't have lots of time to spend through all of this, but just a quick look. I want you to see the Christ of Christmas. Now John explains him and then he describes him here in in this book, right? Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. That just means the time of Christ's return is imminent. It could be any moment the next uh, the next event on the prophetic calendar verse four john of the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood now immediately you have three titles for the person of jesus christ he is called here the faithful witness. He is called the firstborn of the dead, and then he's called the ruler of the kings of the earth. So these titles: Jesus Christ as the faithful witness. It says in uh, the book of Psalms, in Psalm eighty-nine, thirty-seven, that God promised that He would send a witness in the sky who is faithful. Isaiah fifty-five verse four: God predicted there would be a witness to the people, a witness to the nations, a ruler, a commander of the nations. Proverbs 14.5 says there's going to be a faithful witness who will come, and that faithful witness will not lie. So that title, Faithful Witness, speaks to the truth that Jesus Christ is reliable and who he is and all that he says. He is trustworthy. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus speaking says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Verse 13 of that chapter, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness to myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from. And I know where I'm going, but you don't know where I've come from or where I'm going. My witness is true. John 18, verse 37. Pilate speaking, Pilate asks, so you are a king. Jesus said you Say correctly that I am king, a king. For this reason I have been born, for I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Revelation 13, verse 14 the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. The beginning of creation of God says this. So, who, who is this baby that was in that manger? Who is this baby who's coming to the world? He's the faithful witness. He's the one whom God has sent into the world to speak the truth. The faithful witness and the second title, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn it's the word prototokos It uh, doesn't speak to chronology. It speaks to priority. It speaks to position. Priority of rank really is the emphasis. The bottom line evidence firstborn is really that of preeminence. He is the preeminent one. And that understanding would make sense when Paul told the Colossians that Christ, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, not, not born chronologically, but the preeminent one. Verse 18 of that chapter is He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Him. That's the person of Jesus Christ, the preeminent one. So again, Jesus Christ is not just some baby born in some obscure village and placed into a feeding trough, born into a poor family. Jesus Christ is the most preeminent one. The most preeminent one who's ever lived among men. The most preeminent one who's ever died. The most preeminent one who has ever been raised from the dead. Or the most preeminent one who will ever be raised from the dead. Reality is all men. The Bible says are going to be raised from the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus Christ is the most preeminent one. He has uh, because he is God come in the flesh, the preeminent one, firstborn. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead. Verse five. And Jesus Christ, next title is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The word there, ruler, are uh, calling. he just means commander, chief, leader. In Psalm 24, 7, and 8, he's called the king of glory. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37 is the king of heaven. Matthew 2, verse 2, the king of the Jews. John 1, uh, verse 49, the king of Israel. 1 Timothy 1, 17, the king eternal. Revelation 15, 3, the king of the ages. Revelation 19, 16, the king of kings. That's who he is. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is no helpless infant lying there in a manger, Uh, he's come out of the manger. And we need to see him properly for who he is. This is the Christ of Christmas. This is the one whom you worship on this day. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. One who will be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth from long ago or from the days of eternity, a child born, a son given to us. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So Jesus Christ is that ruler. He's the ruler of the king of kings, the kings of the earth. As the ruler of the kings of the earth, his kingdom is superior over all other kingdoms. His kingdom is superior over all other kingdoms. He is the king of the earth. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those who are in heaven, those who are under the earth. Every knee. Now, after giving the titles here, these three titles, very quickly, John says, look, let me show you his work. Let me show you what he does. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. Here it is, him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent Christ into the world. And he sent Christ into the world to release us from our sins by his blood to pay the penalty. Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Verse 25 of that chapter, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 John four ten: this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This person, Jesus Christ, came into this world for the express purpose, born to die came for the express purpose to die. Him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. It speaks of that reality in Acts chapter 20 verse 8. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Hebrews 9 verse 14. The blood of Christ cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. 1 Peter 1.19. The precious blood of the lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. That's what we have been redeemed with. 1 John 1, 1.7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Revelation seven fourteen. these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Let me tell you, that's the Christ of Christmas. That's the Christ of Christmas, him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. You're familiar with the hymn writer, Cowper, who reminds us there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains that's the only place you're going to find reconciliation It's the only place you're going to find restoration forgiveness of sin the blood of christ now if god would have sent jesus christ into the world to do nothing except to be born as a baby uh, just to be born as a man then he could never take away our sin but again he sent him to die for the express purpose to die because it's only the blood of christ the sinless christ the sinless God-man, the only one of his kind that can cleanse us from all of our sin. And we think of the love of God that he has sent Christ into the world. When we think about how much he loved us to send Christ and how much he loved us to send his dear son to Calvary's cross. That should cause us to stop and ponder that great reality. And for us to worship him and to love him even more to consider him greatly especially on a day like today as we celebrate his birth his incarnation but notice what it says there in the text not only the fact that he's loved us past tense but look at its present tense Jesus Christ is him who loves us presently right he loves us presently Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his own love towards us. The while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us presently. And again, if God would love us while we were yet sinners, and if Christ would love us now, the great king of all kings, if he would love us presently now, again, should we not love him even more? Consider our lives in light of the reality of his coming for us, him stepping into time for us him removing us from the realm of condemnation because that's what he's done he presently loves us but he has also it says released us That's past tense it's a completed act he's released us from our sins and he's done that by his own blood that's why we rejoice with um, Paul in Romans 8 and we come to that text and I just love that text you know that that chapter there's now therefore what no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that's the reason to rejoice and celebrate. Jesus Christ, a faithful, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us by our from our sins by His blood. Verse six, and He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. So the work of Christ, the redemptive work of Christ, transforms and changes us. And allows us to go in the very presence of God. It opens up for us the Holy of Holies. That's why when Christ died, you remember the story, when Christ died, the veil of the temple was torn from top to the bottom. He provides direct access for us into the presence of God. He made us to be a kingdom of priests to God and to his Father. The way is open for everyone who repents and believes upon the person of Christ to go into the very presence of God. No wonder with that great reality that John breaks out in doxology, he says to him, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Moving on to verse 8. It says, I am the Alpha. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, Alpha and Omega is the first and the last of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. It's just a claim to deity. It's a claim to eternality. Because there's nothing that comes before the beginning and there's nothing or no one that comes after the end. And I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And then he says, I'm the Lord God, uh, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come. He is the Lord over all, over all of time, over all of eternity, past, present, future. And that's who he is now, presently unveiled. That is the Christ of Christmas. Not the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, not the uh, bearded, sandaled one, meek and mild. He's the Almighty King of all kings. He's the ruler and the kings of the earth. He's the one who possesses all power. He is veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail incarnate deity. That's him. There's no one like him. There's no one like him, or nothing that can stand in his way, and there's no one that can thwart his will. He is God above all gods, Lord above all lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And wise men would probably properly acknowledge that reality and that truth and come and worship him. Wise men would run to him. Seek his presence. Verse 10 says, when he spoke, it was like a trumpet call. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now throughout the scripture, the trumpet is seen as an instrument of power used to signal something powerful, something compelling. Sometimes it was used to call God's people into battle. Sometimes it was used to uh, signal impending judgment or wrath. Sometimes it was used to signal the presence of God. And here he is, the risen Christ, and he's speaking with a voice like a trumpet sound. Again, proclaiming his eternal deity, and, and, and to say that anything less of the eternal deity of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is really to commit blasphemy against his person verse 11 then I turned to see the voice of him who was speaking to me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and verse 13 in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash his head and his hair were like wool were white like white wool like snow his eyes like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace his voice was like the sound of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength so John turns to hear this loud trumpet-like voice and he has to look to see who is making this uh, uh, speech this voice and he has a difficulty describing him in human language look how many times he uses the word like You see someone like a son of man. He has a head of hair that is like wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. He has a voice that is like the sounds of many waters. He has a sharp two-edged sword that comes from his mouth, and his face is like the sun shining in its strength. Again, that's the proper vision of the glorified Christ. That's who Christ is right now, presently, currently. That is the Christ of Christmas, humanly indescribable, awesome, majestic, marvelous, powerful, glorious. And there he is in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches, it says in verse 20. And there he is, the glorified Christ, in the middle of those lampstands, in the middle of the churches occupying the place of preeminence. Now, in ancient times, lampstands were used to hold a small oil lamp aloft prominently in a room to allow the light to shine to as much of the room as possible. And again, the lampstand's not the light. The lampstand just bears the light. And that's the purpose of the church in the world, right? To bear Christ, to lift up Christ, to let the, the light of Christ shine into a dark world. And it says it's gold, made out of gold, but gold just simply represents not the value of the lampstand, but the costly value of the person of Christ to purchase the church with his own blood. Again, verse 13, in the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest a golden sash. That title, Son of Man, is a messianic title. It comes out of the Old Testament. It was the son of man who David saw or a daniel song who would come and rule one day with authority sovereign authority daniel 7 verse 13 i kept looking in the night visions behold with the clouds of heaven one like the son of man who is coming and he came to the ancient of days and it was presented before him verse 14 and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples and the nations and men of every language might serve him and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and that's him that's christ that's the ruler of the churches in the middle of the lampstands i saw one like a son of man and there he is again clothed in a robe reaching to his feet girded across his chest with a golden sash now the kind of robe that is being described here and the word specifically being described is a robe that is worn by a king so the garment speaks of his kingly office the kingly office of christ He's wearing the clothing of royalty. He's wearing the clothing of sovereignty. And in ancient times, wearing a long robe signified, uh, signified authority, a, a dignity, rulership. The, the longer the robe, the, the greater authority. You might remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, that vision book of John tells us when Isaiah sees this vision in chapter 6 is really the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's sitting there on the throne, and the train of his throne does what? You remember? Fill the temple, right? The, the train of his robe filled the temple, again signifying the boundless dominion of Christ that can't be constrained by the temple. So he's wearing the robes of a of a king. He's also, the, the, the robes represent the high priest. The power of christ over his church it is the same kind of garment that was worn but worn by the high priest same word again used in the old testament in the septuagint describes the garment that daniel wore in daniel chapter 10 daniel being the messenger of god so it's a royal robe it's a priestly robe uh, the the robe of the prophet the priest and the king that's the person of, of jesus christ verse 14 his head and his hair were white like wool like snow white is a symbol of purity and sinlessness. He is the sinless one, he's the one who knew no sin. He's the one who's undefiled, the one who's innocent. And John's looking at his head, then he glances to his eyes and he sees his eyes are like a flame of fire, which means he searches and knows everything. Searches and knows the hearts of everyone. He has a penetrating gaze, and nothing is hidden from him. Nothing escapes his notice. He knows our minds. He knows our thoughts. He knows our ways. Again, Christ is inescapable. There's nowhere to hide from his presence. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. That's a picture of judgment, divine judgment. He hates sin, and more than hating sin, he hates sin in the church. With his feet aflame, Christ stands in the middle of his church which, with uh, his white, hot anger kindled against sin. And he will judge sin. He must judge sin. And he starts with his own, the church. But as the ruling monarch, as the king of all kings, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, waiting from that time forward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Again, John says, look, his feet were like burnished bronze. It was caused to be glow in the furnace. Stands in judgment. And then listen to what he hears. He says his voice is like the sound of many waters. His voice is is deafening. When he speaks, it's like the sound of a powerful waterfall. When he speaks, he drowns out every other human voice, every other feeble human opinion. When he speaks, he speaks loudly. He speaks forcefully to the world, to his church. When he speaks, his words are not to be debated. He speaks with absolute, sovereign, divine authority. His verdicts cannot be overturned. His promises cannot be broken. He is, after all, the one who spoke the world and the universe into existence by the power of his words. He is the one who calmed the raging sea with just his voice. He is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, again just by the command, come forth. And He's the one who said it's finished. When he died upon Calvary's cross, he paid the penalty in full for man's sin. There's nothing for men to add to it, nothing else that needs to be done. In the context of chapters two and three of this book, it's a whole long list of uh, churches. And in that uh, declaration by John, it's Christ calling for his church to repent, turn away from sin. Return again. Love Christ. Make him preeminent. Return to Christ and to him alone. That's the command of the Savior. How does he speak to his church? Continuing on here, verse 16, In his right hand he has held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword with his face, like the signing of the sun in its strength. In his right hand he held seven stars. They represent the minister's of the church, there it's a place of uh, accountability. They find themselves in a place of accountability in His special protection. They're held in His right hand. And then it says, "Out of His mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword." It's uh, the word "rampho," so uh, for a large sword, a long sword. Uh, it, it was used by, with two hands. It uh, used sometimes to chop off people's head in judgment. And that's what He's saying here. He's got a sharp, two-edged sword. He speaks with judgment. He speaks. With authority, as the authority to administer discipline to his church. When his word is disobeyed, he yields the swords of the sword of discipline in his church, among his church, in and over all of the peoples of the earth, because he is the sovereign, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And the last thing that John noticed here about this awesome vision of Christ is his face. He says his face was like the shining of the sun in its strength. His face was as bright as the the burning of the noonday sun no, noonday sun. That's just a picture of glory. a uh, glory outshining of all his divine perfections. Uh, again, no longer is he a baby in a manger, no longer is his glory veiled like it was in the days of his flesh on the earth. He is divine radiance, seen. In fact, he's the one who's so pure, so holy, so righteous so glorious it says in revelation 22 verse 5 that one day there will no longer be a need for the sun because his glory will replace the light of the sun there shall no longer be night no long nor the light of the sun for the glory of the lord shall illuminate them revelation 22 verse 5 that's the person of jesus christ that's the christ of christmas that's him presently and what a vision right and no wonder John responds in the way that he does. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. One would think, huh? He laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever. I have the keys of death and Hades. So the one who conquered death, the one who's victorious over death. Again, it's a picture of the preeminent Christ. Here he is unveiled. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed incarnate. Here he is unveiled. Turn over a couple of pages over to chapter 5. And let me sum it up a bit as you're turning over there. In chapter 4, it's a major picture of God sitting on his throne. The church has been raptured. It's time for the tribulation to begin. It's time for God to begin to purge the earth of sin. Time for him to pour out wrath. And all the horrors of doom upon those who have opposed him chapter 5, there's a book. It contains the history of the the future. As it's open, it really starts to unleash divine judgments upon the earth as each seal is broken. Some refer to the book, or more properly, it's a scroll as the title deed of the universe, title deed of the earth. And in the context, there's a need one to find one who's the rightful heir, one who can take the book, one who can open its scrolls, one who can break the seals and, and at least the judgments upon sin and rebellion and Satan. Chapter 5, verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So there's this loud, penetrating call that goes out in the entire of the universe to try to find one who's worthy to open the book. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. No created being was worthy. No created being could perform the function. They were all unable, all unworthy. All in an ongoing chronic condition of unworthiness and inability. Verse 4, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome is to open the book and break its seven seals. So again, John's tears are premature. There is one. There's one who's able. One who's able to open the book. One who's able to break the seven seals. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. Again, titles that speak of rightful kingship, titles that speak of headship, majestic, noble titles of the one who has the right to open the book and unlock its contents, titles of a strong, fierce, deadly ruler, powerful enough to liberate God's people from their oppression. and notice that this one who's born in the city of David uh, is of the lineage of say, the lineage and the seed of David, he's also the one who created David, right? Look what it says. He's the root of David. He's David's origin. And he's looking. Behold the lion that's from the tribe of Jesus. He's looking for this majestic, roaring lion. And look what he sees. He sees a lamb. Verse 6. And I saw between the throne of the four living creatures was just her angelic beings and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. The, the Greek word there for lamb means literally little lamb, baby lamb, pet lamb. It's not just a word for any sheep found in the field. It, it, the idea behind it is, a, again, a family pet, exactly like what was used during the time of the Passover. Remember the time of the Passover, the family was to find a little lamb uh, uh, without spot or blemish. They were to bring it to their home, and the children were to live with that lamb. They were to love it, cherish it. It was to become a part of their family. Until the Passover, then they were to slay it. A lamb standing as if slain, that word slain there means literally to slaughter, to butcher, to put to death by violence. So why was this baby lamb, this family pet, to be slaughtered? Because it would be the perfect picture of Christ. That tender baby who would come into the world out of the Father's love, who was slain, butchered, violently murdered. The lamb slain, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has the power to conquer. So as the lion of the tribe of Judah he has the power to conquer, the power to defeat sin, Satan, death. As a lamb, he... Is innocent, able to satisfy the justice of God for becoming the only perfect sacrifice for sin. So who is it who can unlock the book of uh, human destiny? Who is it that is able to take back the title deed of the earth? Who can carry out the final act of God's eternal plan of redemption and reconciliation? Who alone can purge the universe from the evil of sin and death and corruption? Who is the key? Who is the person to meet the needs of every human being in the entire world? It's only Jesus Christ. The lamb slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Christ of Christmas. One of the elders said to me, stop weaving. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, has to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And we had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, which represent the church, fell down before him, fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now universal joy and universal thanksgiving is going to break out, filling the heavens of the earth. Verse 9, they sang a new song, saying... Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, meant from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So the Lamb's worthiness, while it doesn't exclude his deity uh, the person uh, as his personal God, but the Lamb's worthiness here in the context really relates to the merits of his suffering, the act of his total self-sacrifice. That he is the one who's redeemed men from the bondage of sin and guilt and Satan. He's the one who's freed them from death. He, he's the one who comes and has set them at liberty to serve God and to enjoy God. And he alone is worthy to be worshipped. He alone is worthy to be worshipped. He alone is worthy and able to open the book, to remove its seals. Because he was slain and purchased for God with his blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people a nation and he has made them to be a kingdom of priests to our god and they will reign upon the earth and it's interesting back there in verse 9 it says they sang a new song what's interesting here biblically is angels only sang at the creation back in job 38 verse 7 job 38 7 they sang at the creation they sang before the fall they sang before the curse Again, they don't sing biblically until here. Until after Christ comes and removes the curse. Until Christ comes and conquers sin and defeats the devil. I know we sing, hark the herald angels sing. But you go back and look at that text very carefully. Glory to the newborn king. Go back and look at that text very carefully. Angels don't sing. They just speak. They say. They chant. Here they sing, because redemption is accomplished through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are to take the book from its seat, to break its seals, for you were slain, did purchase with God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, for you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, They will reign upon the earth. And verse 14, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and living creatures and the elders and numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and, uh, uh, and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and amen and amen and the elders fell down and they worship when the lamb appears the entire universe breaks forth in praise and adoration and celebration of him with a continual cry of his worthiness Praise goes out to the Lamb because of the long-anticipated defeat of sin and death and Satan has been accomplished through the one who's the preeminent one, who's the apex of human history, the praiseworthy one, the one who is the Christ of Christmas. Very quickly turn over to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 1, he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and its leaves from the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall no longer be any night, there shall not have need for light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. They shall reign forever and ever. He said to me, these, the words, are faithful and true. The Lord God of the spirits and the prophets sent his angel to show his bondservant the things which must shortly take place. Verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. This is Christ speaking. He came once, treated as a malfactor, abused, murdered, hung on a cross, and he's promised to return. And again, his return is imminent. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So again, that little child born in Bethlehem was born to die. Again, men and demons conspired against him. Men even murdered him, but death couldn't keep him captive. Conquered death, he rise from the grave, arose from the grave, triumphantly ascended to heaven, promises that he's going to come in a moment, quickly. Verse 8 I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things, and he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren and the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book worship God. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near again time's running out time's short verse 11 he says let the one who does wrong still do wrong let the one who is filthy still be filthy let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness let the one who is holy still keep himself holy you say look time's running out in fact verse 11 times out Those who have rejected God's warning, those who have rejected and despised his offer of grace and mercy through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they have fixed their eternal destiny in hell, where they will remain in their evil and their unrighteousness for all eternity. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy be filthy for all eternity, times over. But for those who have responded to God's mercy and his grace and have heeded God's warning, repented and come to the person of Jesus Christ, they have fixed their eternal destiny and glory. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Those who've fixed their eyes on Christ and understood him properly, have their eternal destiny fixed in glory. They'll realize the perfection of Christ given to them as a gift forever. Verse 12, again, the Lord Jesus, I behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have a right to the tree of life and enter by the gate of the city. Outside, he says, forever, basically is the idea, are, are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things to the churches. I am the root, the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Again, he says, I am the root. I am the source of David's life. I am the source of David's lineage, again, which establishes his eternality, his deity. And again, being the descendant of David, establishes his humanity, identifying, again, Christ as the only one of his kind, the only God-man. At his birth, there was a star that announced his arrival. When he comes again, he'll be the brightest star. He'll be the brightest star to shadow the darkness of men's night. He'll be the one who heralds the dawn of God's glorious day of redemption and consummation. Verse 17, the spirit and the bright say, come, let him who hears say, come, let him who is thirsty, come, let him who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. The plea from the God of the universe is to come, the plea from the God of the universe is to come, drink freely of the water of life in an unlimited offer of grace and salvation through this person, Jesus Christ. All who want to be forgiven their sin, can be, freely, not by anything you've done, but by everything that God has done through Christ. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Again, the vast majority of people in the world today celebrate, quote-unquote celebrate, Christmas without having any idea of what they're doing. Because they don't know the one whose birth we're celebrating. And many churches today chose not to gather because there was something else they felt was of a higher priority. And some professing believers say we shouldn't participate in Christmas, we should actually keep Christ out of Christmas. I personally think we should celebrate the most preeminent person who's ever lived each and every day. And why would I exclude December 25th to do something different? We should seize the season for the glory of God, the glory of Christ. Again, I think at this time of year, it's coming, it's here, it's fading. But I do think at this time of the year, men's hearts are soft. Because men know that they're guilty. They know they need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is the only Savior. We need to show them their need of him. who will be the praise of all heaven throughout all of eternity. Show them that the greatest gift that any man could receive is not some gift from another person, but it's the gift of salvation and eternal life. It's the gift of God's dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born in that manger to die. Born for the express purpose to be the substitute for sinners who would repent and believe upon him. That they might be forgiven and enjoy freedom from their sin and freedom from the wrath of God. I said it earlier, I said it last night, there's three principles that really come to the forefront when you think about Christmas. When you think about the fact that God has invaded alien hostile territory, as it were, right? When Christ comes into the world, it really speaks to the reality of man's sin. We need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. That's why God the Father sent his Son. So his presence in the world, the fact of Christmas, speaks to our guilt, speaks to our need of a Savior but also it speaks to God's tremendous love and mercy, his grace and forgiveness to Christ. He doesn't have to forgive our sin, but he does. Therefore, the third point, the last point, Christmas demands a response from you. Those who know him, those who worship, those who love him already, we should worship and love him more and never be ashamed of him. But if you don't, you must repent. You must turn from your sin and come to Christ. Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. The one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take of the water and life without cost. That's a true biblical picture of the Christ of Christmas. That's who that little baby is now presently the one whom we worship. Again, one more time, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thankful for that great picture. Thank you for allowing us to gather this morning to worship you, to celebrate you, to celebrate the birth of our Savior, your Son, who incarnated himself to save us from our sin. Help us to focus on that great reality this day and every day, each and every day of our life, worshiping you, honoring you with our lives, with our words, our thoughts, our actions, as you so rightly deserve. And for our dear friends and family members who don't know Christ, may you open their eyes that they might receive the greatest gift that you desire to give men the forgiveness of their sin and eternal life through your Son, our Savior. May this day and the proclamation of the truth be a day that they would no longer look at Christ in the same, just as some baby in a manger, but may they, and we also see him again as who he is, the living King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of our lives, the Lord of all. We so greatly thank you for allowing us to meet this morning. We worship you and honor you in Christ's name. Amen.